Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, now we pray that you would bless these few moments we have in your word, give clarity of thought, clarity of speech. And Father, may we today understand uh, truly how blessed we are and how thankful we ought to be that we are ruled by and raised with the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask all these things now in his name. Amen. Just south of Upland, Indiana, on State Highway 26, sits the greater metropolitan area of the city, actually the village of Matthews. Population, 559 people. Now, if you've ever driven through this blink-and-you-miss-it little burg, you will nonetheless remember it. There's something uh, very striking and very noticeable about the village of Matthews. As soon as you cross the Mississinawa River, the two-lane highway that's the main drag running north-south through town suddenly becomes five lanes. The first time I drove through it, I thought, what in the world? Why does this little town suddenly have a main street that's five lanes wide? Well, there was a history professor at Taylor University who actually knew the story behind the five-lane road in the middle of Matthews. Back in 1821, Indiana became a state in 1816, and back in 1821, the Indiana legislature announced that they were going to move the state capital from Corridon, Indiana, which is way down south on the Ohio River, and they wanted to move it to a more central location. That's what they said. Now, in reality, uh, if you know American history, you know that in the 1820s and 30s, the slavery, anti-slavery issue was heating up. Kentucky was a slaveholding state. Indiana came into the Union as a non-slaveholding state. And so they were a little nervous to have a state capital that close to the Ohio River. So they announced, we're going to move it. We're going to move it to central Indiana. Well, the city fathers of Matthews said, great, we're in central Indiana. We want to petition the state legislature to become the new state capital. So on their own dime, they moved all the buildings back and they widened the main road in Matthews to let everybody in the legislature know how serious they were about it. And by golly, they could get stuff done. But it was all for naught. 
the state legislature, instead of giving the state capital to the good folks in Matthews, Indiana, decided instead to form a new city. The town of Indianapolis was founded in 1821 for the express purpose of becoming the new capital. So now, 200 years later, there's not much left of the glory and the grandeur of the city of Matthews. All that's left is this wide five-lane road that sticks out like a sore thumb in a town of 559 people. This morning, as we begin Paul's letter to the Colossians, we need to understand that this is a letter written to particular people who live in a particular place. Colossi was the Matthews, Indiana of Asia Minor. Once upon a time, it was a vital metropolis in the Lycus Valley. It was known uh, for its shearing and for its wool production. It had prominence as a city of wealth and considerable magnitude. But then it was sacked. It was destroyed. Most of her people resettled in other places, and the folks who came back to rebuild the city could not recapture the grandeur and vitality of an earlier generation. And so Paul's writing to a church that's in a town that has seen better days. He's writing to a church that's in a town that was once something great and prosperous. But now, in the words of A.T. Robertson, Robertson says, Colossae was the least important of all the towns to which a Pauline epistle was addressed. It's nowhere. It's insignificant. But the message that Paul has to this gathered group of believers in this little forgotten town is a message of incalculable value. Robertson goes on, he says this, but Paul had no greater message for any church than he here gives concerning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, whenever we start a series in a new book of the Bible, we want to give what we call the melodic line, so what we think the book is about. We're going to give a more detailed melodic line when we get into chapter 2, because that's really where Paul tells us the purpose of his writing. But as you saw on the, the, um, on the what do we call it, the logo for this series, the melodic line, short, sweet, to the point, is the incomparable Christ. See, Paul wants the Colossians to mature in their faith in Christ, but he's presuming that they actually know something about him. And so the book of Colossians does a wonderful job of giving us in the form of this beautiful hymn towards the the middle and the end of chapter one, this beautiful hymn of who Jesus is. And then on the basis of who Jesus is, Paul talks to us about what our lives ought to look like. Now, he begins this morning in our text by introducing us to some themes that he's going to develop more fully throughout the rest of the book, and you see them on the outline in front of you, either on the screen or on page five in your bulletin. And the big idea then for our time is this. The presence of faith, hope, and love mark those who are ruled by and raised with Christ. The presence of faith, hope, and love mark those who are ruled by and raised with Jesus Christ. Now, 
uh, we said this is a letter. It's a letter written to particular people in a particular place. And letters, as you know, have tone. The letters that Amy and I wrote back and forth after we were engaged, by the way, this is before cell phones and Facebook and everything else. We actually had to write real letters. Well, the letters that we wrote after we were engaged had a very different tone to them than the ones when we were just dating. There was a new uh, level of affection and love and care. There was a new level of obligation that we had entered into. The particular tone of the letter to to the church in Colossae is warm. Paul begins by telling them in verse 3 that he's thankful to God for them. In fact, he tells them in verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. This is not like the letter to the Galatians, in which Paul uses uh, the most uh, spicy, strong, colorful language you can imagine in the New Testament. It matches some of the language that Jesus uses when he's addressing the Pharisees. It's not even the strong tones that he uses to the church in Corinth. No, uh, this is a letter of warm regard. This is a letter of a guy who is thankful for the work and the grace of God in their lives. He's thankful, first of all, that these are people who are ruled by Christ. These are people who are ruled by Christ. You're saying, well, how, Pastor, how do you get that? Well, in verse 1, as he introduces himself, he reminds them that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And then later, as he's recounting to them how it is that they came to faith in Christ, he says, listen, you heard it. You heard the grace of truth. You heard it and understood it. From Epaphras, our beloved fellow minister, and then he goes on to say, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Now, what those two things have in common and what unites those two ideas, the idea of Paul being an apostle and the idea of Epaphras being a faithful minister of Christ is that these are both men who are representing Jesus to his people. They are both men who are called and commissioned by the resurrected Christ to serve in his stead as he oversees and rules his people. It's interesting in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul tells us that when Christ was ascended into heaven, at the same time as he is going up, he sends down gifts to the church. Now the ascension is a sign of Jesus' lordship. The ascension is a sign of the fact that God the Father was pleased with the work that he did, and he's calling him back. And we know that the ascended Christ sits at the right hand of God the Father. So as Christ is going up, he gives gifts to his people. And the gifts, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, 11, are, are apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers. In other words, now we would say the gifts that he gives us are the officers of the church. So we can think about it this way. Right after church this morning, you're going to hear from a couple of the gifts that Christ has given to our church. We're going to hear from our deacons about our budget. And let me also say, that's not hyperbole. As an elder, who I, we can, I can handle our own budget at home, that's fine. But our budget this year is neat and clean. It makes sense. The numbers add up. 
Don and Larry are really good at this. In that way, they are Christ's gift to his people here at Grace Church. Being ruled by Christ means that we accept the gifts that God has given to his people. And so Paul doesn't just refer to himself as an apostle establishing his authority, but he also refers in verse 7 to Epaphras as a beloved fellow servant, a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. He's letting them know, he's reminding them that the resurrected and ascended Christ in his grace and in his mercy has given his people these gifts. He's given Paul the apostolic ministry and he's given Epaphras the ministry of the word. And by the way, Paul says he's a faithful minister of Christ. This is how Christ rules his church. Not through some sort of extra biblical uh, command, I have this new word from Jesus. No, he rules his people through his word, uh, through the authority that he himself has established. Now, please understand, uh, that doesn't mean in any way, shape, or form that the officers of the church rule absolutely. No, we we don't. We're we're just kind of keeping the seat warm. It's Christ who rules his church. He's merely working through those whom he calls to rule over and to superintend, and as we'll see, to serve faithfully the people who are called by his name. Now, please understand, if you're here this morning and you're going, well, okay, but I listen, you just need to know, I don't really want to be ruled by anybody. I don't care if this is a church or not. This whole notion of elders and, and deacons and officers of the church or the, the apostolic ministry rules over the church. No, 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 no. I'm, listen, uh, I'm an American. I, I'm not ruled by anybody. Well, let me remind you of what Meredith read for us this morning. That one of the things that is indicative of uh, folks who are rebellious is they reject the kingship of the triune God. They reject having God rule over them. Furthermore, let's understand we're all ruled by something. If you doubt that, try not paying your taxes this year. Find out how that goes. Friends, we're all ruled by someone or something. The question is just by whom or by what? Paul is thankful for the church in Colossae because he can tell they are ruled by Christ. He's also thankful for them, secondly, because they are raised with Christ. He says to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. In other words, they're not just a congregation of people who are gathering in a particular place, but they are those who are positionally with Christ. They are in Christ. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, they have been united to Christ himself. Now, if that sounds that you're like, wait a minute, uh, 
Can you go a little further? We will, because this is a major theme that gets developed in the book. And so we're going to come back to it, but just understand that Paul is thankful for the fact that the Colossians have been raised with Christ. He understands that that's their primary identification. Did you notice that? He says to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So their primary identifier is the fact that they are in Christ. Not that they live in Colossae, but that they are in Christ. And one of the things we're going to see as the letter develops is Paul wants us to understand beyond the shadow of a doubt that your primary identity is not your family identity. It's not your biological identity. It's not your national identity. It's not your sexual identity or any kind of identity you want to create for yourself. Your primary identity, if you are a Christian, is the fact that you are in Christ. And then there are a number of implications for that. And Paul's going to unpack those as the letter goes on. But for now, we need to know that if we are here this morning and we are in Christ, that is reason for thanksgiving. It's reason for thanksgiving. I was talking with a pastor friend of mine. We had uh, been dealing with a, a shepherding issue, and we were uh, just talking about uh, just life in general and ministry in general and what do you do with these kinds of things. And uh, I said, you know, listen, I'm, my problem is, because uh, I have a background in athletics, I'm always looking at these kinds of things and trying to go, okay, number one, how does this not happen to me? And then number two, how do you, how do you have it turn out differently? So in other words, what do we need to learn so that moving forward it can be different? And he's like, well, that's good. He said, but I'm, he said, I'm glad that your mind works that way. But he said, here's the other thing I've learned. What I've learned with some of that is sometimes – uh, when I when I see these things unfold and I see my own life and I realize there but by the grace of God go I. He said at the end of the day, what really it just evokes in me is just I'm really thankful for the grace of God. There's nothing I need to do. There's nothing I need to stop and go, okay, uh, here's the, you know, A plus B equals C and do. And he said, no, at the end of the day, it just makes me really, really thankful and grateful for God's grace. And that's what Paul is saying to the church in Colossae. Hey, you've been raised with Christ. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that your primary identity is you are the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, that brings us to the third point, which is to help answer the question of, well, how would you know? How can you be sure? It sounds like from these opening verses of the book of Colossians, it's a good thing to be ruled by Christ and raised with Christ. But how would you know? How can you with any certainty have any notion that you are indeed safe and secure within the gospel? In other words, how can you know that you really are a Christian and not just someone who claims to be a Christian? Well, Paul gives us the telltale legacy of believers. He lets us know what it is that characterizes them, uh, the kinds of gifts that are going to show up and manifest themselves in their lives because they are indeed ruled by and raised with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now we see this sort of trinity of things other places in Paul's writings. And you see them there listed on page five, their faith, hope, and love. That's the legacy that the Spirit of Christ gifts to the people of Christ to assure and remind them that they they are indeed ruled by and raised with the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 4, he says, we always thank you when we pray for you. Why? Because we heard of your faith. Now, let's note, he doesn't just stop with faith. Keep reading. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Friends, I talk to lots of folks who, when you know, when you mention, oh, yeah, I'm a pastor. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I believe I have faith. Okay, faith in what? Scott Frost is going to turn it around? Faith that you're going to have a better life than your parents did? By the way, that's not the gospel, it's the American dream. See, faith is only meaningful and significant based on its object. Faith itself is worthless. It's the object. Of the faith. And Paul says he's thankful for them because their faith is in Christ Jesus. And not only do they have faith, but they combine that faith with love. And it's interesting, isn't it? The, the, the love that they have, let's just go on, to, we'll, we'll go from A to C there in your outline. Because in verse 4, he says, not only do they have faith in Christ Jesus, but they have love for all the saints. That's, an, again, a really interesting phrase. He doesn't say that you have love for all the people who love you. Uh, all of my immediate family is here this morning. It's rare because they've grown up and gone to college, and so it's nice that they're all here. I won't tell embarrassing stories about them because I haven't paid the money ahead of time, and that's our deal. It's easy to love them because they love me. But nobody says, you have love for all the saints. So in other words, look around the room and go, hey, can I love everybody here? And is everybody here sort of lovable? I got news for you. You're not. I like you. But it's this really interesting kind of love. It isn't just love for God. It isn't just love for the people who love us. But he says, because of the love that you have for all the saints. And you're going, Pastor, how in the world can you do that? Look down at verse 8. Epaphras has made known to us your love in the Spirit. How is this kind of love possible? It's possible because you're indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. I'm indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. It's possible because as Les is indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, and Helen is indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, and Don is indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, and Meredith is indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, it's the Spirit of Christ then drawing us together to one another. And so we can laugh with those who laugh. We can weep with those who weep. We can mourn when it's time to mourn. We can celebrate when it's time to celebrate. Why? Because we love these people, not because uh, they're our biological family, but we love them because they're a part of the spiritual family that we're a part of. 
And we love them because they are indwelt by the same Spirit of Christ that we're indwelt with. This isn't love like, oh, uh, just be a really nice, kind person. No, this is a love that's possible only through the Spirit of Christ. There are times, and if we're not careful, we'll fall prey to this. There are times in which we think it's okay to say, you know, I, I love God. And I love Jesus. The Holy Spirit kind of weirds me out a little bit, but I love him too. But I don't know about this loving God's people. God's people have wounded me. God's people have disappointed me. God's people have done me wrong. Well, friends, not just Paul here in these opening verses, but also John in 1 John remind us that if you say, I love God, but I don't love God's people, we don't really love God. He's thankful for their love, that their love is for the saints, and that their love is in the Spirit, because that love is a telltale sign. It's the legacy that they are indeed ruled by and raised with Christ. He then says in verse 5, that they are people who possess a particular kind of hope. And note in verse 5 how it starts. It starts with that word, because. How is it that I can love you? How is it that I can uh, that I have faith in Christ? How, how are all these things? What, what's the sort of animating uh, desire? What's the animating fruit behind this? He says, there's a hope. And that hope is not here and now, that hope is laid up for you in heaven. So often I think we think of hope as a kind of wishing. There are uh, There's one of our deacons who I'm sure this morning is hoping fervently beyond hope that his beloved Kansas City Chiefs will triumph today. He's wishing. I don't say that it's an unfounded wish, Jeff, but you're wishing. See, hope, the, the kind of hope that the Bible talks about is not wishing, but it's objective. And it's looking to the future with a kind of certainty that's based on things that have already happened and are already completed. That's the kind of hope that the Bible talks about. Several years ago now, the wife of one of our uh, teaching elders in our presbytery uh, died. She had ALS, and uh, to watch her um, sort of slowly erode and shrink and then ultimately uh, succumb to death was brutal. And the graveside service uh, was cold and snowy and we were standing there and uh, my friend Chad Anderson spoke in that moment about the hope that we have in the gospel 
Friends, he wasn't talking about, don't we wish it could be different? Of course we do. No, he was talking about the sure and certain fact that because Dawn had been raised with Christ, she was now whole and healed and with her Lord and Savior. That was the hope of the gospel. Not wishful thinking. No, this wonderful legacy, this wonderful inheritance that tells us there is something waiting for us. There's something laid up for us in heaven that Christ himself has brought about. And that kind of hope is pictured for us this morning at the table. That kind of hope we're going to get to see and smell and touch and taste. We're going to hear Jesus' words to us. And that kind of hope tells us that in the past, Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed. And in the future, there's another table that's yet to come. Friends, that's the hope that we have. It's the telltale legacy of those who've been ruled by Christ and raised with Christ. And like the Apostle Paul, we should be thanking God. That's our legacy. We have been ruled by. We are ruled by. We have been raised with. And the presence of faith Hope and love means that we're not just wishing for things. But our future is secure based on the past work and love and faithfulness of the God who saves his people. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the hope that is ours. Thank you that this hope is not a mere wishing, but it is sure, it is certain. It is a hope at times that defies explanation. And it's a hope, thankfully, it's not based on our performance. No, it's based on the fact that you are faithful to your covenant promises. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of your promises have found their yes and amen. So this morning we pray that as we partake spiritually of the Lord Jesus Christ, that uh, our hope would be strengthened. That we would come to understand the certainty of the treasure that has been laid up for us by your son. We pray all this now in his name. Amen.